This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell met with a coalition of community organizers and signaled that despite a groundswell of public opposition, she's still fighting for City Hall to be moved to the municipal auditorium. A coalition of advocates for immigration detainees filed a federal administrative complaint on Friday claiming that immigration and customs enforcement detention facilities in Louisiana and Mississippi have been releasing immigrants against agency policy. And following surging COVID-19 case numbers locally and around the state, Mayor LaToya Cantrell announced a mask advisory, but not a mandate, at a Wednesday afternoon press conference. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, contributing writer Jordan Hirsch is here. Hey, Jordan. Hello. Contributing writer Madeline Arufo. Hi, Madeline. Hello. Health reporter Philip Kiefer is joining us. Hi, Philip. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Morning. Jordan, starting with you, in a tense meeting earlier this week, New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell said that if opponents of her plan to use FEMA money to renovate the vacant and decrepit municipal auditorium facility and use it as the new home for City Hall want to do something else, they'll have to come up with their own proposal and will get no help from the city in the process. Tell us about the meeting between the mayor and the group Save Our Soul. Who are they? Why was it happening? Who was, who was there? So the Save Our Soul Coalition formed specifically to oppose the relocation of City Hall to the Municipal Auditorium. There were about 30 people present at the meeting. Uh, the mayor attended with several members of her administration. And it's a meeting that the coalition had sought for quite some time. Going back to, I want to say February, some of the organizers uh, who were in leadership positions in Save Our Soul before Save Our Soul was constituted, they started asking for a public hearing about this issue and for a meeting uh, with the mayor. And um, it took quite uh, some time for that to happen. And so when everyone got together this week, it was the culmination of months of, of organizing and, and conversations between and among organizers about how they could engage the city. What happened at this meeting? Why now? Well, I can't really speak to the why beyond, you know, the conversations between the organizers and the administration. To my knowledge, the organizers would have been happy for this to have happened in in February. So the city has not held very many public meetings on this issue. And so there hasn't really been a good venue for Mm. this dialogue. You know, the city conducted in the end of January, an online informa- information session. And um, there's limitations of what that could do, right? Um, it was during COVID. Uh, and at the same time, though, there were, the city made no attempt in the months since to have a convening or to, um, to broker any communication between the mayor and the community that's really concerned about this issue. Right. And so uh, that was the impetus for the rally in March and mid-June from Congo Square to the current city hall. It was, um, as I understood it, uh, the organizers' response to um, not having been able to sit down and have this conversation. It's something that the organizers have been trying to effectuate for a while. Okay. And what did she say yesterday at the meeting? What did she tell them? She said that if they wanted to see something else happen, they would have to make it happen themselves. 
she essentially said that um, in in 90 days, uh, according to the mayor, the administration will be putting a plan in front of FEMA to start the ball rolling to access funding for the renovation of the auditorium. The documentation and the, the plans that the city has been developing, you know, for a couple of years now, describes the auditorium's conversion to City Hall. So when they sit down and talk to FEMA, that's what they've got to describe. And the mayor said, if, if you want us to describe something else, you need to not only determine what it is, but find the, I guess, $100 million to make it happen and to lay out all of the details of how it would be operated and maintained. The mayor said that the reason why that was required of the committee, and also it wasn't clear whether the mayor considered the 30 people in the room to be empowered to put this proposal together as opposed to, you know, thousands of New Orleanians who were not in the room who would want to see a particular thing happen. Like she wasn't, I mean, it, it was essentially a disingenuous proposition, and so it didn't matter. Mm. But the, the premise of the proposition, as I understood it, was that because the city was required to tell FEMA this information, it would have to be there and the administration was, was not interested in pursuing it. And so the, the committee was told, you need to provide to FEMA what FEMA is asking of us. And notably about that, it had not been made public by the administration previously that that information was required uh, from FEMA. Uh, it was there was no conversation previously that said that FEMA has these requirements. In fact, uh, Councilwoman Kristen Gisselson Palmer, among others, has reached out to federal agencies and state agencies to find out what exactly is required of the city in this situation. Right. And the requirements that the mayor outlined at this meeting were different than the ones that had been previously discussed. Okay. Yeah, and and so a little background that is. Basically, uh, what the mayor is saying is that this requirement for a specific use to to be stated for the building is part of a, a ruling in an arbitration proceeding from several years back between her predecessor, Mitch Landrew's administration, and FEMA over over how much money was going to go to the municipal uh, to to repair the municipal auditorium. Uh, this arbitration was uh, completed and ruled on in 2018. It was basically that, that FEMA, FEMA was uh, FEMA was basically saying the city shouldn't get as much money as it's asking for in the municipal auditorium for various reasons, including that the city has allowed the municipal auditorium to deteriorate since its post-Katrina condition by not doing any work on it over time. Um, what came out of that ruling was, uh, you know, this 30, $38 million dollar figure that we're, we've been talking about with municipal auditorium. And this week, Mayor Cantrell claimed that part of this arbitration ruling was this requirement that, you know, within a certain period of time, the city would have to identify a particular use. And right now, the only use that's been identified and put and any work put into it is this city hall proposition. And maybe maybe Jordan can address this and maybe not, I'm not sure. You know, we took a look at this arbitration ruling and it we couldn't really identify this particular requirement in it. Basically the arbitration ruling assumes a so-called white box repair, 
which is just bringing the auditorium back into working order and identifying a use for it later after that's done. And we asked the administration, you know, where in this ruling can we find these requirements that you're talking about? Jordan, did we ever get an answer back on that? No, we haven't. So that's interesting. I, I'll be interested in hearing from the administration a bit more of this as we get to this 90-day deadline. But but yeah, I mean, as you said, it does. It did seem to be a fairly disingenuous, um, you know, sort of offer that the mayor made there because, it, it, as she even admitted at one point, she said something like, "There's no way you're going to be able to put this together in 90 days." What was what was the reaction from the group when she said things like this, Jordan? You know, I'm hesitant to characterize other people's emotional state, right? But. Um, I would say it, it would be easy to, to say uh, deep frustration. Um, you know, it was really emotional. The issue is really personal for a lot of the organizers. You know, Cheryl Austin, for example, was living on North Villary Street when the city started demolishing her neighbor's houses for a cultural center on the land that ultimately became Armstrong Park. So, you know, she's been in meetings with city officials for half a century essentially having the same fight over and over again. And so the way that the administration handled community engagement in this process, I think is particularly exasperating for organizers in Treme who have for decades uh, contended with, you know, whether it's land use issues or, or various city policies that treat them unfairly. And, and so it was, uh, there were raised voices, there were quivering voices, there were people having to leave the room to control their emotions, um, and it was, uh, it was intense. Can you explain from uh, the Save Our Soul and, and other community members who are opposed to this proposal, what's at stake for them as far as the history and why they're opposed to it? Yeah, so Save Our Soul is a diverse coalition uh, there are different issues bringing different people under the umbrella. For many, um, as of course, individuals have multiple uh, animating forces here, but the big ones are, number one, Congo Square. It is regarded as sacred grounds um, by many New Orleanians. And something that the administration has, has never really contended with. So since the January online uh, information session, when the city's intentions first started to become clear to the community, it was an immediate response. And the administration's uh, reaction to that has been unchanged since January, which is to say, we agree that Congo Square is sacred ground and the presence of City Hall on Congo Square will enhance the status of the square. Mm -hmm. They have accepted that Congo Square, that its historical boundaries range to the ground that is beneath the auditorium. You know, we experience it now as something adjacent to, but for, for many people in the community, the auditorium itself, that that's the same. It's a contiguous space as far as many people experience it. And the administration has not gone so far as to refute its status, but it has refuted essentially the relationship of city government to that holy ground. From 
the mayor's perspective, it's something that will be um, a benefit. They've talked about using City Hall in part as exhibition space, though didn't specify what would be exhibited. Um, but there has been no real movement from the administration around the relationship of city government itself, and also just to the mechanics of an office building, right? Thousands of people traipsing in and out all day and vendors and so on. Um, they just don't see that as um, denigrating or diminishing. They, they see it as, uh, you know, at times they've used the word celebrating or enhancing. Mm. In addition to the concerns about Congo Square, uh, there are concerns about the greater Treme area. So obviously Armstrong Park is in Treme and projecting ahead about what it would be like to have, you know, a thousand people going to work there every day. There are neighborhood impacts that any neighborhood would object to, right? Increased traffic and congestion and, you know, who knows what kinds of uh, just logistical issues would come up with security around the city hall, right? But, but more fundamentally, uh, because Treme has been gentrified so intensely in recent years, there's a sense among uh, opponents of the mayor's plan that, you know, putting a hundred to $150 million development in Treme is ultimately going to have the effect of displacing those longtime residents who have so far managed to stay in the neighborhood. I mean, mm. before Katrina, Treme was around 92% African-American. Now it's, uh, maybe 56%. I mean, the, the demographics of Treme have changed drastically. The, the fabric of the community has really been frayed specifically by public policy and by city government. And uh, so the presence of city government as an agent of you know skyrocketing tax assessments for homeowners and um, of unwanted traffic is, there's a sense that the, the phrase that I hear used a lot among the organizers is nail in the coffin. Mm. That if, if there are any pieces of the fabric of Treme that are still able to be stitched together, that this development would be the end of them. Okay. It sounds like what she suggested or what she tasked them with was almost a specious proposal. To, to you, you all come up with your own proposal within 90 days or how to do it with, with no help from her or her administration. Is there anyone on city council that's signaling their willingness to organize with Save Our Soul and and help them? Good question. So this the, this was the, f the first time the coalition had heard of this demand was at the meeting. And uh, I'll be honest, I don't, I'm not aware of, of conversations that they may have had since then with members of the city council. I do know that members of the city council over the last couple of months have become uh, very vocal about opposition to this because they've been hearing from their constituents. I mean, it's a, it's an overwhelmingly unpopular proposal. And so um, I can't speak to specific authors of council members to work with the coalition, but certainly as evidenced by recent votes of the council, they're motivated to get involved. I mean, on July 1st, they established a, a zoning district in Armstrong Park specifically to block the start of construction on this project. And then a couple of weeks later, they passed a measure that is designed to start them down the road of changing um, the comprehensive zoning for the city to make it so that the city council has to approve any future move of city hall. Hmm. So I'd say certainly there will be movement from that end. I'm not sure where it stands right now. Yeah, and I think when you talk about the council, that's where we're we're starting to see some 
what I'm seeing at least a little bit of electoral politics at play here, because the council members are in competitive races. The mayor is not. The mayor is almost certain certain to be reelected. There is there is no one who qualified during the qualifying period for for that office who is seen as a very serious contender. And the council members are, you know, some some of them are in really high profile races where they don't know what the outcome is going to be. If the mayor is now saying that we live in we that where we are right now is that this thirty eight million dollars is immediately at risk, uh, you know, you could. See see someone potentially making the argument that keeping this money or leaving this money on the table is is now in the council's hands that uh, we only have one we only have one use identified we need to identify a use now how we got to that point um, you know don't don't worry about that but uh, we only have one use identified and if the council doesn't go along and you know rescind this IZD in time to get things going, they're the ones who lost the forty million dollars. At least you know in terms of how this could play out in the months leading up to the election. Mm-hmm. You say that um, Green went on to say that the city doesn't want to spend millions on a building, and this is a quote on a building with no funded destination for what it's going to be because we're going to have to trust in five years, someone else is the implication, another administration in five years to operate it, maintain it and protect it. Will you characterize that if you would? I found that particularly interesting. Yeah, I did too. The thing that it made me think of was, so at the meeting, the administration had said for the first time, hey, this is coming from FEMA. We have to, uh, we have to designate a use and find operating resources for this facility. You know, that was counter to what FEMA and state agency had said previously that the use didn't have to be designated before the money could be spent. What I found interesting about that statement by Ramsey Green was that if FEMA is the source of that stipulation, it's a stipulation that agrees entirely philosophically with the administration's position, which is that we don't want to do a white box construction. We don't want to leave the use open-ended. It's our belief that fixing it up uh, just to restore its, its, you know, make it weatherproof and, and restore its basic functionality. It's our belief that that is not a good outcome. And they were explicit about that. And so they are, you know, in, in harmony. If, if that's what the arbitration says, then they agree. Mm. Okay. It's going to get heated, I think. <laughs> here it already has yeah um jordan it's a great piece thank you for your work on that thank you very much madeline last week immigrant advocacy groups filed an administrative complaint alleging immigrations and custom enforcement have failed to follow release protocols who filed the complaint what are they alleging so 17 immigrant rights organizations filed this complaint, which is an administrative complaint, and it was filed with the oversight office at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. And so it alleges that detention centers throughout Louisiana and Mississippi have been violating the ICE performance-based national detention standards. And those are just a set of standards that contain things like how immigrants are supposed to be released and whether or not they're supposed to be provided with certain resources. And specifically, these organizations are saying that the way that immigrants have been released in Louisiana and Mississippi from these various detention facilities has been putting their safety and well-being at risk. 
All right. So normally it says it has certain stipulations. Tell us what some of those are. The standards state a set of protocols that the detention facilities are supposed to follow. Um, Like if, for instance, a facility is more than one mile walking distance from a transportation hub, um, released people are supposed to be dropped off at that transportation hub. And it also states that they're supposed to be provided with the list of like legal, medical, and different social services that are available in the surrounding area, um, as well as shelters and directions to those shelters. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, the detention facilities are also supposed to facilitate transportation coordination through family or friends um, so that these people are not just left to fend for themselves without any contact. But unfortunately, this isn't happening in a lot of cases. I talked to Francis Kelly, who's a volunteer with the organization Louisiana Advocates for Immigrants in Detention, which is one of the organizations that filed the complaint. And she said that they've had immigrants saying that they were hurried onto buses and told basically, if you don't get on this bus right now, you're just going to stay here forever. And in other cases, detainees were processed out of the detention facility but unable to reach a family member, sometimes because they weren't given enough notice that they were going to be released. Um, And what they end up doing is sitting in the lobby of these detention facilities for sometimes hours. And oftentimes the staff doesn't speak their language and they aren't given more opportunities to call their family on the phone. So it just seems like a pretty difficult situation for a lot of these folks. And in other cases, the standards require, like I said, the that they're supposed to be provided with a list of resources. Well, sometimes folks weren't provided with these resources at all, or they were provided with a bunch of papers that are in a language that they don't mm. read. So that's not very useful. And I guess in, in potentially the worst of cases, people weren't allowed to contact their family at all. And Francis Kelly told me that in one of those situations, they had someone go missing for three days without any ability to contact their attorney or their family. So that's just sort of the worst potential outcome for this is someone being essentially stranded in a place where they don't speak the language with no money, no resources to contact their family. Right. Your story and the filing suggests that it's fairly widespread. It doesn't seem like it's uh, limited. Yeah, that's right. So, um, It seems that different advocacy organizations have noticed this happening for over a year and a half, um, is what they told me. And it does, the complaint lists every detention facility in the state of Louisiana actually saying that they all have a variety of these different issues. Okay. And you spoke to some of the people affected. What did they say? Yeah, so I talked to a group of Haitian women um, through an interpreter, and they were part of a large group of immigrants that were released from Jackson Parish Correctional Center in Jonesboro. They were dropped off at a bus station in Shreveport last week on Thursday, and they told me that when they arrived, they thought that there would be someone in, you know, the facility to help them contact their families, make travel arrangements but that didn't happen. They were essentially just left there to figure it out for themselves. And so these people said that they used gestures and signs to communicate. And eventually they were able to talk to a station worker who helped them and let let them use his phone to contact their family members. 
Um, and he also seemed to be aware and, and sympathetic of these types of releases taking place. So he knew to put them in touch with um, Louisiana Advocates for immigration for Immigrants in Detention, who was then able to send volunteers to come help these women out and help them arrange travel um, and provide a translator so that they would be able to arrange travel. And yeah, it just seems, unfortunately, that these women were left to rely on the kindness of strangers, which is not, you know, the most professional way to be releasing people into a country where they don't necessarily speak the language and they don't have resources on their person. So what happens after a complaint like this is initiated by this organization? How long before any kind of resolution or response? So I asked about that and it it doesn't seem like there is a required time frame for the, it's the um, oversight office of the US Department of Homeland Security for them to respond. But what does happen is that office, which the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties with Homeland Security has the chance to retain the complaint and do their own in- investigation of what the complaint alleges. If they decide not to do that, then my understanding is um, the inspector general then also gets the chance to decide if they want to investigate the complaint. And so it just seems like it's going to go through this administrative process. And hopefully, if the investigation gets done, they will be able to uncover why this is happening and maybe issue some stronger guidance to make sure that these immigrants are being released in ways that frankly make sense and are safe and logical for everyone involved. And humane. Okay, thanks, Madeline. No problem. Thank you. Philip, COVID cases are spiking in the state and in New Orleans. Yesterday at a press conference, Mayor LaToya Cantrell implemented a mask advisory. What did Mayor Cantrell and Health Director Dr. Jennifer Avegno say yesterday? They said basically two things. The first one, and this is something we're hearing from everywhere in the city, in the state across the country is that we're getting swamped by the Delta variant. Over the last two weeks, the average number of daily cases has gone up nine times from about 11 a day to over 100. Um, Hospitalizations are starting to rise. Um, Yeah, it doesn't look good. Um, It's a really infectious version of COVID and um, Louisiana has lagged in vaccinations. New Orleans is doing a little bit better, but and basically at the national average, but nowhere near what public health officials have said we would need for quote unquote herd immunity, although that basically seems like it's off the table. And so the other thing they said is we're implementing a mask advisory, which is a non-binding It's advice for everyone to wear masks indoors when you're around people outside your household, whether or not you're vaccinated or not. And the city says we won't be enforcing this. That's the difference between a mandate and an advisory. They won't be sending the fire marshal to issue citations to, um, to businesses or anything. 
I mean, it's obviously a different approach than we've seen in the past from from this administration. Throughout this crisis, we've been mostly dealing, we've been mostly talking in terms of mandates and enforceable things. But essentially, you know, legally, you know, in terms of enforcement, we're not in a situation that's really any different than what we have been in, which is which is in May, the mayor lifted for all intents and purposes, lifted the mask mandate that had been in place. But, you know, the language she used was there's still a mask mandate in place if you're unvaccinated. Now, since that's basically impossible to enforce, it meant, practically speaking, that there was no mask mandate. And now we're in another situation where the mayor is saying that uh, that we are advising people um, who both vaccinated and unvaccinated to wear masks at indoor businesses and other public places, but we're not enforcing it. So we're we're basically in the same situation where there is there's no mask mandate. There is just a strong recommendation. Now the thing I was surprised with versus what this mayor has done with the past in the past is that when we've seen things like this before what the, the mayor would immediately come out and say, we are not doing any new restrictions now. However, we're going to be back in two weeks and the situation could be different. Uh, and that's when we might be talking about more restrictions. She didn't say that as directly. And I don't think she said anything like it until she was prompted by a reporter yesterday. Was that what happened to your memory, Philip? Yeah, that's that's what I remember. There was a little bit of discussion of you know, we're monitoring the situation in her first her first talk, and then in response to a question, she she didn't say two weeks from now we're going to reevaluate, but she did say a little more directly, we may reevaluate this at some point. She brought up the festivals in the fall, but I, I think that's more of sort of a threat than anything that's immediately on the table. Yeah, and the fest, I mean, you know, things like festivals in the fall is probably, I would assume, what's sort of driving this current posture of recommendations rather than mandates, because basically we've been in a situation where the city government, at least, was gladly, you know, welcoming the tourism industry back after its very long and devastating hiatus. Um, and we are coming up, uh, we're coming up to a season where all the things that were supposed to happen, you know, a year ago or six months ago are now going to happen. There's tens of millions or more invested into these events. And the city, the administration is in a tricky situation, especially when they don't have the state or federal government to lean on, um, you know the C- this, the CDC is still in the same position as it has been for a little while on on masks and and the CDC throughout has not been you know the the federal government has not been issuing really mandates and the state government it does not appear like it's you know politically doable for for governor edwards to reimpose new restriction new restrictions after barely making it through the last few fights on restrictions so the city's kind of floating out there on its own uh, and and has to contend with the tourism industry or, you know, it, it, slash is working with the tourism industry. What's the over under on on whether or not we're going to have a mandate in New Orleans in the next couple weeks? I would not be shocked to see something in two weeks. I think part of what made, you know, there are all these political calculations and sort of around the unpalatability of a mask mandate going into this announcement this week 
at the same time, even knowing what we know about Delta, and it seems like it's taking people by surprise in public health. I mean, and this is something that people were telling me when it first arrived in Louisiana is, you know, if you had two weeks to tamp down an outbreak with the ancestral variant, now you have one week. That It just moves really, 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 really fast. Um, and I'm expecting to see if this outbreak is already underway as badly as it looks like it is. Like, I think it's baked in. And so then I am going to be curious to see what the response is to that. But I think we're about to see a really big wave. I don't think it's going to be as deadly in New Orleans as previous ones, because in spite of all the conversation about breakthrough cases, there just aren't many breakthrough serious cases. And New Orleans has fairly high vaccine coverage. And I was just looking at this statistic. Children are under 12 are not eligible for the vaccine, but there have only been 300 deaths among children under 17 in the U.S. from COVID this entire time. So I'm not expecting to see the same kind of mortality as we saw, especially last spring in this surge or even over the winter in New Orleans. But the thing that they're talking about at the press conference and, you know, Avegno is seeing when she works in the hospital, they also had Dr. Emily Nichols from the emergency medical services there talking about this is they're going to be taking in patients from all over the rest of the state and that will overwhelm our emergency services and um, hospital system. So that's 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 going to be a huge impact on New Orleans. That's what it's going to come down to ultimately is the the chance that we see new restrictions coming in from the state or the city. And I suspect that we're going to have to at least hear some, some stronger language from the governor uh, and LDH before New Orleans does anything dramatic. But if we start to see these hospitalizations continue to rise to the point where we're once again in danger of overwhelming our local health system or, or health systems in other parts of the state, that's when we start having more serious conversations. It, it'll be the same thing as it was in spring of 2020. Mm, okay. All right, Philip, thank you very much. You got it. <laughs> Everybody, thank you. It's getting hot. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.